You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You're now tuned into the Pod Awful channel. Pod Awful. Bi-quarterly women's social club. Dazed and convicted. Pool party radio. Show King. The Devil's Advocate. The Projection Booth. Awful Flips. Pod mi ambición fue tremenda. I wanted to make something sacred. Una película que diera las alucinaciones de LSD. Si tomara LSD to change the young mind of all the world. Michel Siduk said to me, I want to make a new picture with you. What do you want to do? I say, Dune. And he said, yes. C'était le plus beau livre de science-fiction, si on peut la Bible de la science-fiction, succès d'édition mondiale. I didn't read Dune, but I have a friend who said me it was fantastic. 3,000 drawings. I shoot the picture. Point of view. Movement of the camera. Dialogue. Designing the spaceships, the clothes, the whole look of his world. The castle. Open the mouth. Uh, the spaceship came in the tongue. His vision was so huge, so beyond what anybody else was doing at that time. Things that George Lucas wasn't even going to try with Star Wars. It's enormous. Part of Hollow's genius was finding the right people. David Carradine, Mick Jagger, Dali as the mad emperor of the galaxy. Dali said, can I have a burning giraffe? All right, all right, we'll have burning giraffe. Or somewhere else. Yeah, I say, I don't want to do it. I say, if you do the picture, I will hire the chef of the restaurant and you will eat as here every day. And I say, I do it. Giger nunca había hecho películas. I say to Giger, I need you as you are. Alejandro completely motivated you. It was wonderful. We will change the world. People did not do this film because they were afraid of his imagination. This is a movie that has its fingerprints all over so many other movies. Blade Runner, William Gibson, Matrix. Giger, he make the monster of Alien. And Hollywood start to use my group. It always leads back to Jodorowsky. Could be fantastic, no? Welcome to the Projection Booth. I am your host, Mike White. Joining me, as always, is Mr. Rob St. Mary. You know, I want to make a movie that makes people feel like they took acid, but they didn't take acid. That's really the idea. That's pretty admirable. This week, for a special episode, we are talking about Jodorowsky's Dune, or Howdorowsky's Dune, however you want to pronounce it. One of the interesting things about this movie is all the different ways that people say Alejandro Jodorowsky's name. A little documentary out this year, kind of touring around the country right now, and we had the pleasure of speaking to one of the people behind it. But first, let's talk a little bit more about the movie. So, Rob, you finally got a chance to see the film. What'd you think? I absolutely love this. As a matter of fact, I know that this movie, I can tell you right now, it's May, and this movie is going to be in my top 10 of the year. And I think it's going to be on that top 10 of the year with another film documentary that I saw recently. And that is also starting to get some word. And that is The Search for Weng Weng. And Andrew Leovold's Search for Weng Weng and Jodorowsky's Dune are completely wonderful pieces of documentary film that if you're a film geek and you have any interest 
in either Jodorowsky or Dune or sci-fi you're going to want to check out, and especially with Andrew Leovold's thing. I mean, if you know Wang Wang, you've heard of Wang Wang, it's like you got to check that one out too. And I think these two, like I said, are definitely going to be in my top ten for the year. And it's great that people are out there doing these kind of movies where they're pulling up these nuggets of sort of buried, hidden uh, cinematic treasure for us to enjoy. And uh, I, I think it's just a great ride, and people are really going to enjoy it. Jodorowsky's doing as soon as I heard about the project, I was all over this. I've been a fan of his for quite a few years. Uh, I think I started off with El Topo way back in the mid-90s. And unfortunately, he's not nearly as well-known as he should be, thanks to some crazy legal stuff that was going on throughout the mid-late 70s, all the way through the 80s, and really all the way up until the 2000s. His films were pretty tough to see, at least his early ones were very difficult to see, and those were the ones that he was really known for way back in the day. He was kind of the father of midnight movies. His El Topo was one of the first things that played Midnight in New York City and stayed there for years and years and got this big cult following. You know, we're not talking Rocky Horror Picture Show kind of thing where you come and you throw toast and all that kind of stuff. There's no shadow casting, at least not that I'm aware of. And I would kind of really kind of freak out if I saw a shadow cast of El Topo, really. But El Topo is this kind of surrealistic, meditative Western. El Topo is not a Western. It goes far beyond any Western. Told through Eastern mysticism and just absolutely fantastic. And then we get into The Holy Mountain, which we'll be doing an episode on The Holy Mountain later on this year, I think maybe a couple months from now. And that one, it's May now, go out track down a copy of holy mountain if you haven't seen it if you have seen it dig it out and watch it again and really you owe it to yourself to go see jodorowsky's dune on the big screen if only for the few minutes of footage from el topo and a holy mountain up on the big screen because that will just take your breath away as well as the rest of the images that we see in jodorowsky's dune you know you were talking about jodorowsky and sort of how he deserves more attention and he really does and and you know you were talking about the legal stuff there and i think really what the problem was for a long time and i think the reason why people who are film fans would maybe are not familiar with him as much as they should be is because of all of that legal stuff. I mean, his stuff wasn't on DVD until Anchor Bay came around in 2007 and put out this wonderful box set of Fondo and Lease and uh, El Topo and Holy Mountain. Now, Fondo and Lease had been out previously through Fantoma. But uh, the other two, which are the ones that he's really well known for, those were held back. And sort of the reason why this was, and we talk a little bit about it in the interview with Steven Scarlatta, is that Alan Klein, who owned Abco Records and was also the, the manager for the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, got involved with Alejandro Jodorowsky after the story goes John Lennon had seen El Topo. And John Lennon told Alan Klein, you should work with this guy. You should pick this up and distribute it. So it became an Abco film, and he put it out, and then he helped to put the money up and distribute Holy Mountain. And when he got into some sort of fight with him later on, a few years later in the 70s, he put it all under lock and key. And for basically 30 years, this stuff, nobody was able to see it. I saw you know, El Topo and Holy Mountain on these really bad uh, VHS bootlegs that were, I think, of Japanese laser discs because they had the, um, the usual pubic uh, fog and also I think they had Japanese subtitles. So 
not the most ideal way to see them, but this this box set from Anchor Bay, which came out in 2007, and as soon as I heard about it, I picked it up immediately. And what's wonderful about it is that it's not only those, but an early short film and also the soundtrack to both El Topo and Holy Mountain. So, you know, you, you really can't do any better than that. I mean, beyond that, Santa Sagra, which he did in 1989, that had been out on VHS, that had been out on DVD, and uh, Severn Films did a beautiful uh, Blu-ray of that just uh, a year or two ago, and I picked that up, and that's that's really enjoyable as well. Um, almost like Santa Sagra, in a way, reminds me of um, maybe like a take on Psycho in some way, sort of this um, sort of circus thing meets Psycho. There's this whole sort of like mother-son kind of thing that's going on in there and it's really well done and as you hear steven scarlatta in the interview talk about he picked that up just on a lark because it had one of the argentos it was claudio argento dario argento's brother had produced it so this movie jodorowsky's dune i'm hoping will get some broader attention especially from people like i said who are sci-fi fans or dune fans you know maybe they like the david lynch film and they go in to see this and then they go, wow, you know, who was this guy? And wow, what innovations, you know, did he do that we end up seeing years later in sort of changing the course of science fiction film? And that's one of the things that you see in the film is that even though the movie was never made, there was a lot of stuff that, um, that did influence people later on down the line. Jodorowsky is one of these guys where if you were to do like a, a flow chart of his career and just all of the people that he touched throughout his career, you would have, you know, looking at Jodorowsky's Dune, when you watch that movie, your eyes are just going to, you know, pop right open when you see all of the people that he worked with and kind of put into motion as far as going into Hollywood and creating other things. And it was very much the same way when he was a younger man. And before he tried to do this Dune project, he was involved in so many different artists, you know, Roland Topor, um, you know, Raphael Korkidi, who was his director of photography, all of these guys making different films and doing different projects. He was part of this whole panic movement back in the 60s, I believe it was. And there was just all of these great people that were coming together. It was kind of like when we were talking about Louis Bunuel and him and Dali and all of these people that were just kind of at the center of the art world back then. It was very much Jodorowsky and these other guys and these other guys, like they're not important, but they were very you know, prominent artists all working at the same time and all kind of interchanging and working on other people's projects. And it was just a, an amazing cross-pollination of different cultures and different ideas all under this kind of surrealist banner that we had seen earlier in the 20th century with these earlier filmmakers. So it was pretty amazing to see where he has been in his career and who he has influenced as he's gone along. And for me, as the Bunuel fan, as you know, Jodorowsky is the next level. Like he is the heir apparent in a lot of ways to what Bunuel did. I would say that in terms of American surrealism, it would be David Lynch. I would say it's, you know, South America, it's, it's Alejandro Jodorowsky, and even to some extent, Jose Mujica Marin's Coffin Joe, although he wouldn't have known who Bunuel is, I don't even think, if, if you go back and you listen to our show on, on Coffin Joe. But, you know, it's just he has this particular way of doing things, and it's, very, it's a very singular vision. There's no mistaking 
uh, Jodorowsky film when you see it. It's that interesting. I mean, and I think that the reason why his films work so well, and this is one of the things that you get when you watch the uh, Jodorowsky Dune documentary, is you understand that he's he's not coming at it as just a filmmaker. He's coming at it as a musician, as a director, as a guy who's interested in tarot and spiritualism and um, just like all of these things. I mean, his early career in terms of being an actor and a stage director and all of that he did was he studied on mime under Marcel Marceau. So he just has this really broad range of stuff that he pulls from. So he's not one of these guys who, you know, got shot out of the film school and went right to making films or he was just so much about film that that's all he could do. No, I mean, he did comic books. He did all kinds of things. So this is a guy who is a multi-level multimedia artist. and He's got so many different things going on. And that's what I think also makes his stuff so rich. The sadness is, is that he hasn't been able to do a whole hell of a lot of features. You know, he probably has six features to his credit, two of which I've never seen. And luckily, we have this documentary sort of um, is the entry point for his new film that's coming out, uh, The Dance of Reality, which I'm looking forward to seeing. And I hope that that gets a broad enough release that I can actually see it in the theater. All right. So let's go ahead and take a break and play back a interview with Steven Scarlatta, the producer of Jodorowsky's Dune. My name is Steven Scarlatta, and I am the producer of Jodorowsky's Dune. How did you and director Frank Pavich meet? We met back in like 92 uh, at uh, Columbia College Hollywood Film School. Uh, Actually, Frank introduced himself to me. I was the other uh, student from New York, and and that's how we kind of hit it off together. One of the things we did share in common was our love for uh, music, like he, I was more into like metal type stuff. I know he was mostly more into hardcore, and so... You know, I was familiar with hardcore, but not a lot. And he kind of got me into that scene a little bit more. And then, yeah, and then eventually, a few years later into our friendship, every time we'd go back to New York, we would end up going to hardcore shows together, like Murphy's Law, Biohazard, you know, Crown of Thorns. And then eventually, you know, I remember one day, you know, there wasn't a lot of stuff on on hardcore. It was mostly like punk at that time. So I remember just pitching him an idea to do a New York hardcore documentary and, um and he was into it, and then th- that was back in 95 when we started shooting our first project together. And that didn't come out till what, 99? <laughs> yeah, 99. <laughs> yeah, summer of 95, and then it came out in 99 when all the bands broke up. We had a great audience for that, but uh, it still has like a little audience, which is cool, and we just keep you know picking up on. But it was also, I think, the bands we picked at the time, we thought they were going to get bigger, and you know, unfortunately, not a lot of them did. I guess that's why it's probably not even on Netflix VOD either. I guess there's just not enough popularity in those bands. We wanted to be the first guys out there with like a hardcore documentary, but you know, it took us a little bit longer to get it out. And I think we were, we came out the same time as another hardcore documentary named Release, and so a lot of people got the two confused. Also, pardon my ignorance, but what was the title? I apologize. It was called uh, NYHC for New York Hardcore. Getting into Dune. You know, did you have a relationship with the book at all before you began? Did you know what did you sort of know about Dune? I had zero relationship with the book. I I grew up, you know, I was born in the early seventies, so I grew up with Star Wars, and I also grew up with like Starlog and Fangoria. And my mother was a avid book reader, so she used to always get these Book of the Month Club catalogs. 
And lots of the times they would have Dune on the cover with all the worms. And being a big horror fan, I would just rip out those pictures and like hang them on my wall because I love the worms. And then eventually, I guess I read it through Starlog or, or you know, I would, oh, the only thing I would read was like the movie section of the newspaper also. But, you know, it was word was coming out that Dune was coming out and it was going to be the next Star Wars. So I just, and, you know... Yeah, it was always like in Starlog, and it was always kind of out there that this movie was going to come out. And, you know, we all knew at that point Star Wars was over, was somewhat over with Return of the Jedi. There was those rumors if they were going to do the, you know, one, two, and three and all that shit. But I was really amped to watch Dune. It came out, David Lynch's Dune, and I didn't get a chance to see it in the theaters, but it came on VHS, and I taped it on Betamax, and I watched it, and... I didn't really understand it, but it didn't stop me from watching it over and over again. I guess what I was trying to, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, um, it was, it was, it was a weird time for me. It was like, I was, I loved movies. I was really young. I loved Star Wars and this was supposed to be the next Star Wars. And I just did not understand it. And I thought I needed to understand it. So I ended up watching David Lynch's Dune over and over and over again. Then it would came on cable, I'd watch it over and over again. And I just kind of became obsessed with it. You know, I even had like the Marvel comic of the whole movie. I think it was Marvel that put out the comic, a whole comic. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I had that, you know, and I always look through it and the guys were holding their knives really cool and shit. You know, I was a kid. I'm like, wow, it's going to be awesome. And then I watched the movie and I was kind of dumbfounded. I was like, what is this? It's so strange. And uh, I don't know. It, then... You know, it, what's really interesting now, if you look back at the newspaper ads when the movie came out, like the top ad is like, it's the gone, of the, it's the gone with the wind of sci-fi movies. So I never read reviews, but I, from what I thought, it was supposed to be an awesome film. <laughs> so it wasn't until I, I was in high school when the film school teacher said, was talking crap about Dune. I was like, what? Dune's bad? And pretty much everyone laughed at me. I thought it was a an awesome film. I, I I was obsessed with it. So it, I'd never, re- I, I hadn't read the book yet. It was just being obsessed with this strange sci-fi movie. You know, that's pretty much how it started with me with Dune. I guess I'll, I'll fast forward really quick. Early mid nineties. It was like Odyssey video, 99 cent days. Like I ran out of Argento movies to rent and I came across this movie with Claudio Argento's name on it named Santa Sangre. I rented it, and I guess I was except I was expecting something Argento-ish. I guess the one thing that stuck out to me when I was watching the movie the first time was the death scenes were kind of the first-person view of the stabbing. I, I got into the film, but it was just something else about that movie. I was like, I've never seen anything like it. It was unlike any other horror film. It wasn't really. It wasn't even a horror film. It was like I had a. It was like it became one of those movies that I had to show all my friends every time they came over. It's like you got to watch this movie. So I watched Santa Sangre like over and over again, and then eventually I caught on to the director's name, Alejandro Jodorowsky, and then, then it became like that journey of putting on the fedora hat and trying to track down these films, you know, because video stores weren't carrying them. And the internet, you know, I still wasn't so hardcore with searching out stuff on the internet at that point. And so it just became this long process of of finding Holy Mountain and El Topo and... I remember we actually got a copy of Bondo and Liz before the DVD release. And it was, you know, it was something really exciting about watching a lost movie, you know, in your living room with your friends. Everyone's at the edge of their seats trying to make out the subtitles, you know. So it it was just a really cool time discovering Jodorowsky like that, searching out these films, watching them, 
And then when I got a job, I, I, was, I didn't really have an internet access for a while. Well, my roommate had it in his room, but it was just, uh, I didn't have like, I couldn't always be on the internet like how we are today. But I got a job and what I always would look up on the internet was like Jodorowsky. And eventually I came across a website called The Symbol That Grows. And that's when I first read about Jodorowsky's Dune. It's probably the late 90s. And, you know, when you first read about it, it's like, I don't know, my head was going to explode. I was already so obsessed with Dune and becoming obsessed with this new filmmaker. It's like, what the hell would these two worlds been like together? Jodorowsky and Dune. Jodorowsky, the first thing popped in my head was Jodorowsky with worms, you know, with monsters in his film. What would that have been like? And then from there, I just became like kind of obsessed over it. What was it about Jodorowsky's film work when you saw, you know, Santa Sagra and, and the, you know, the earlier stuff, El Topo and whatnot? What was it about his work? I mean, if you're going to talk about it in totality for you, what is it that sort of spoke to you about what he does or how he does it? Uh, I guess for me at the time, I, I found it at an interesting time in my life. I mean, I was a huge horror fan also growing up and God, around the mid, around the early to mid nineties, I was in film school, and I guess I slowed down on watching horror. And also, it was just at that time, it was like Doctor Giggles and Brain Scan. And don't get me wrong, I love those films today. But at the time, just the horror scene, I don't know. It was just very strange to me. It just I wasn't, it wasn't grasping me anymore. And when I started watching Jodorowsky movies, when I because they were foreign. I don't know. I, I, I almost felt like the first time I saw Holy Mountain, it's just it, the movie actually freaked me out. It was almost like watching a horror film. I'd never seen scenes like that, you know, especially like that strange cake scene when he grabs the face of uh, the Jesus statue and it's like cake, <clears throat> you know, like it, it. I was so used to horror, but I'd never experienced films like his. They disturbed me. They pulled they pulled cords in me I never knew I had. Like, I've never experienced um, a films like this before because they were just, like, really sticking to me. And then they just started becoming those types of films where, you know, if there was nothing else on, I would just throw on Holy Mountain, throw on El Topo, just to tr- kind of figure it out because I was still kind of dumbfounded by it. I'm like, what is, you know, is there, you know, what's the purpose of this film? And plus, the copies were really bad. And so a lot of the time you were just like really looking extra close. But uh, I just, they, they felt like they were from another universe, these films, you know? I guess the best way to describe it. And they really captivated me. And it was just like that perfect time for me. You know, I was in film school and, you know, I was like, ah, you know, and I just discovered this filmmaker. So kind of marrying, you know, your interest in Jodorowsky to this documentary that you eventually made. What was that process like? How did those two worlds kind of collide and then you were able to do this? Kind of walk me through that. Going back to when I first read about Jodorowsky was going to do Dune, there, wasn't a, there was really nothing on the internet about Jodorowsky's Dune. There was only very little on that website, the symbol that grows. And then it just became just this process of being obsessed with something. You just wanted to learn as much about it as possible. And in a weird way, I still kind of didn't think it actually existed. I thought maybe it was just a rumor. Uh, Recently, I was talking to someone who brought up, like, didn't you find that Cinefantastique magazine that had whole huge articles spread on Jodorowsky's Dune? And unfortunately, at that time period, I didn't. On eBay, I would buy, like, old Starlogs. I actually, I would go to, I went to the cinema library. That was one of the first things I did. And uh, I, I was able to start looking through like the daily variety and ads and shit like that. And 
one of the first things I found also was like, uh, I think it was from the Daily Variety of just uh, ad of Dan O'Bannon being attached to Jodorowsky's Dune and finding some, I think there was another, there was a uh, like fanzine that did an interview with, with uh, Dan O'Bannon and there was a couple of the storyboards. And then that's when it just started, I just started seeing like, you know, like I got like a rush from it. It was like, wow, this did actually exist. You know, it's here in the Hollywood Reporter and the Variety. Like, you know, this movie was going to happen. And then from that point on, it was just putting together the players and then just trying to find, you know, star logs and buying Frank Herbert's bio and buying the making of Dune book. Just every single thing I could find that ever would have mentioned it in it. And then... You know, it, it was like an on and off process for many years. I was I was doing it, and then just little by little, this one amazing website popped up. It's called Dune Info, and this guy is incredible. He just he managed to find a few storyboards, and he had for the first time I've ever seen was the character sketches. Like he was like the first person to put those on the internet. And then when I started seeing those character sketches and a couple storyboards, that's when it just really started to hit. Like wow, this you know. Do a documentary about this. This makes sense, you know. There's actually stuff that does exist about it, and so that's when it kind of the ball started rolling more and more. And then eventually, in around '06, I believe it was, it was like '06, '08. I think it was '06. I, I ended up bringing the project to Frank Pavich because we did New York Hardcore, and you know, it came out in '99. And then him and I worked on a few projects. We tried to get a few projects off the ground after New York Hardcore. We tried to do like a straight edge movie together, but it never, we never can get funding for it. Or every time we got funding, it would fall apart. And then we talked about other various documentaries. And then, you know, I pitched this to him. Yeah. And then he kind of dug the idea. And then from there, we just uh, started working on it. I just would start sending him all my, he was just moving to New York at the time. He was leaving LA. And then I just remembered, gathering him all my research I've done and gathering him more research and sending him, you know, binders and packages with all the research. And, and then now, and then little by little from that point on, we just started working on it. So you started 2006, 2008, somewhere in there. How long did it take you to finally wrap this bad boy? Oh God, like last year. Yeah. Like 2006, 2008 is when I brought it to Frank after the research. And then it became the uh, more, even more research. And then, trying to find Jodorowsky, and then uh, Frank found Jodorowsky, reached out to him, and then I believe it took him like a year to get back to us. So it's like, what, okay, so we probably, it was, I think 2011, late 2011 is when we finally got the thumbs up to start working on it. And we got the thumbs up from Jodorowsky. Was there any hesitation from him uh, talking about this stuff? Was it a sore spot for him after all these years? Well, at first we thought it was because it took us it took him a while to get back to us, and then once he got back to us, looked like he was ready to go and talk about it. As you can see in the film, he's really you know he's really energetic the way he talks about it. It just ended up working out with him. To tell you the truth, maybe it was just after you know. Also, at this point, was Dan O'Bannon just passed away and David Carradine just passed away. And now we're coming to him with this film. Maybe he thought this is the perfect time to start talking about it. You know, people are now starting to pass away and get sick. And um, yeah, maybe he was more comfortable at this point to tell his story. Well, not going to say maybe it was because he ended up doing it. But it was a trip for him to say yes. It was just, you know, like I've worked on so many projects that have fallen apart. Not only that, throughout the 90s, I also watched a lot of his movies fall apart. 
you know, we watched, you know, Sons of El Topo. And then in the 90s, you know, David Lynch attached himself to King Shot. And we thought, again, we almost had another Jodorowsky movie. It was a trip for him to say yes to be a part of this. You know, words can't describe, especially if you hear how, you know, how many years we're working on it. So Yeah, wasn't there one called uh, Abel Kane? that Marilyn Manson was involved with? Yes, that's what uh, Sons of El Topo, I believe, evolved into. Had a really sick poster. Well, I took a picture of a poster, one of the posters in Jorowski's hallway. It looked awesome. But uh, yeah, that that one fell apart too. Because like for a while there, it looked like these were going to happen. Because at one point, he got the director for Water Like Chocolate attached to Sons of El Topo to direct. And... You know, I'm shocked with him attached, they couldn't even get it going. And that was supposed to happen in 97. You could see that he wanted to make films, but no one was giving them money for it. You know, it's like you have this amazing artist that actually wants to make movies. And these movies will most likely be classics, but they're never going to (laughs) happen. You know, it it was a shame. So when, of course, when he said yes to us, I mean, I was just completely blown away. The thought to be a part of a Jodorowsky movie is pretty, it's like a dream come true. It was pretty insane. What do you remember about the first time you met him? The thing I, I take away from it, and it's weird, is that I was sitting there. And I was, you know, I was taking a few pictures here and there just because I couldn't believe I was there. I remember stepping away and looking at his DVDs, and I saw a DVD for uh, the DMX Jet Li movie, Cradle to the Grave. And I was like, this guy is just human like us all, man. He has awesome, he has taste in, <laughs> in crazy movies like all of us. And, you know, it was like really cool seeing stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, it, it was just, it was just, it was a trip meeting him. But, I mean, it was just, it was mostly, you know, not going to lie. It wasn't like he wasn't hanging out us or anything. It was just pretty much business, you know. We're going to start doing these interviews, you know. You know, but also like, who are we, you know, to be in his house? I mean, it was really cool to meet him. But it was also, you know, it was work and it was, you know, business and everything. But it, it, it was surreal. I, that's all I could say. I, like I said, I couldn't believe I was there meeting the guy. It was, it was just a trip. Did you have to prove that you were a spiritual warrior rather than just a technician? That, I know. I guess we didn't have to go through any of those crazy journeys like they had to. We had a little bit much easier. When Jodorowsky came on board, did the others line up, or did you have to go prod them to talk to you? Did he just open the Rolodex and say, here, call Giger, call these other guys? Immediately, he wanted us to talk to, uh, well, he had uh, Frank go for Michelle Sado because he had pretty much the rights to Dune and to all the art and everything. So without him, we don't pretty much have a movie. Frank went off and met him, and he was really into it. And then once he was on board, and now Jodorowsky's on board, we pretty much had the movie and yeah pretty much we were very we were very lucky yeah like chris foss came on board we were able to get diane o'bannon we really tried hard to get mobius but yeah he was sick at the time so unfortunately that was really heartbreaking for us He's such a main part of this film and that was one of the things that kind of broke our hearts we really wish we could have spoken to him but you know we understand you know we don't he wasn't well at the time. Besides him, we were lucky to get Giger. And as everyone you could see in the film, yeah, it, it was uh, everyone did kind of line up. We were very lucky. It was interesting. There was growing up in the 80s. I don't know if you guys remembered. We had so many cool like genre cinema programs like This Is Horror and uh, Shadow Theater and stuff like that. And lots of times they would feature H.R. Giger. I always known him from those specials because of the making of, of Poltergeist 2 with the 
I remember they did like a Poltergeist 2 episode and they went through him designing the worm and Greg T. Nelson's body and all that. And I, I don't know, I, I knew who Giger was and I've always been interested in him because of his work in horror. And uh, it was going it was going to meet him was just mind blowing because in his museum, we shot him in his museum and you could see all these awesome paintings of all these other projects that Giger worked on that never got made, you know, like the tourist and then like you know the the train and there was just so much amazing stuff there and what's interesting was talking to like Giger was he he was kind of I think he was very disappointed he he didn't work on David Lynch's Dune you know he got he would have probably been on when when um, Ridley Scott was attached to Dune most likely he was going to be a part of it because he was already designing the worms for Ridley Scott and um, yeah, and that was one of the things he told us. He was he was bummed that he wasn't a part of it because he designed after he worked on Dune. He was so influenced by Dune, he designed all the Harkonnen furniture, and that's all what's in the Giger bar right now. And so, like Dune itself, even influenced Giger as an artist to keep working on things in that world, like that furniture, and it's a big part of his museum. And so, then when you look at David Lynch's Dune, you know it would have been it would have been you know the Harkonnens were totally different than you know what Jodorowsky and I guess what Giger was designing but you know it would have been interesting Chris Foss had a lot of interesting stories about working with uh, Stanley Kubrick like he worked on AI and uh, Foss actually had in his workshop like the Statue of Liberty from AI that he was working on with Kubrick and the one thing he kept talking about was just like how when he worked for uh, Jodorowsky Jodorowsky really got him to do some of the best work he's ever done. But while working with Kubrick, Kubrick just had him so, like, pinned down. Like, he could barely leave for any breaks, you know. He could barely do anything. And just to hear someone like him talk about how much better it is to work for Chodorowsky than to work for Kubrick, I found very interesting also. You know, when you're dealing with people on this level who are doing this kind of work, you know, some of them might have rather big egos or big opinion of themselves and was just wondering, you know, years later, going back and talking to some of these folks and did that present a problem? Was there any sort of, you know, attitude amongst them about certain things or, you know, that Jodorowsky guy, forget him. I mean, what, what did you kind of, uh, did you see anything like that? Actually, no, everyone was really inspired. Like Chris Foss even says it in the movie, it brought out his best work. Diane O'Bannon like had nothing but great things to say about what Dan O'Bannon would say about Jodorowsky. He was like a guru for him you know, and really helped change him. Oh, it was only with uh, Douglas Trumbull was the only time that, you know, you kind of heard any negativity. Oh, and there was one other thing, I guess, was with, uh, well, we never heard it from anyone. We heard a story from Jodorowsky that Charlotte Rampling uh, did not want to be a part of Jodorowsky's Dune because of a a scene. There was a certain scene in the film where um, when the Harkonnens are leaving the planet Arrakis, when they're trading it back over to the Atreides family, the Harkonnen army, 2,000 extras, drop their pants in front of the palace, and they all take a shit at the same time. This was to insult the, tra- the Atreides. It's the ultimate insult. And so that scene, Charlotte Ramplin read and just refused to be in the movie. So I thought that was very interesting. Besides that, no, we actually never really, besides Trumbull and like those stor- that story, there was nothing really... Oh, until later on, if we get into, I guess, Hollywood and stuff, there's nothing really 
it was nothing like that that we can see or was just left out from when people talk to us. You had so many different languages going on in the film, and you've even got Jodorowsky switching from English to Spanish on a dime. Was that ever a problem for you guys? It ended up working out, so I guess not really. <laughs> it kind of, like, they understood the questions, and then they would just, you know, go off, and thank God what they were telling us was good. I mean, we didn't have a translator. You have a translator there, then, you know. I don't know. It, it ended up working out. I mean, they really, they, they understood the questions, and they we never had a translator with us, and pretty much we had more than enough stuff to even use, more than enough stories and more than enough information, so... So you're sitting there, you're asking the questions in English, and you've got, say, Giger there responding to you in German, and you have no idea what he's saying, other than he's saying something about the project. We hope that he's answering the question that we asked. Except, actually, we did have a translator for Giger. That's the only, that's oh, the only well. person. Everyone else. God damn it. All right, so <laughs> Michel Sadu, you ask him. Yeah. The French guys, none. Um, yeah, no, yeah. Uh, Jorowski, none. We were very lucky they were answering the questions for us. In talking about, you know, the people that you did interview, and, and you mentioned Mobius already, you didn't get a chance to talk to him, and I was just wondering, between those who had passed away and those who were still around, who would you have liked to have had that you just couldn't get, or, you know, people rejected you outright who are still alive? I did a lot of research of who was in the studio systems in the 70s. Unfortunately, a lot of people passed away, but there were some names I, I found and I reached out to, but they didn't really want to talk to me. They do say every studio had this had the book, the Dune Book of Storyboard, so I really was dying to find someone in the studio system that seen these storyboards, and I called and called and called and reached out, and uh, it was just excuses, or, oh, this guy's already doing another documentary on himself and doesn't want to, you know, be in two in one year or whatever. They just give me all kinds of answers, you know, and I tried reaching out to uh, Robert Evans. I, I tried to reach out to everyone just in Hollywood, old school Hollywood, just so I can get, you know, want to get as many thoughts on what they would have thought about these storyboards. You know, what did you guys think? Why did you turn it down? And that was the most devastating thing was not finding any of those guys to come on board. I'm not going to say it's more devastating than not getting movies. That would, you know, that aside, that would, you know, we really wanted to get those voices in the film, you know. We wanted to be as fair as possible, but just everyone was turning us down, unfortunately. And I, I also wish we could have interviewed David Carradine because we didn't get a chance to interview any actors. You know, Mick Jagger was that one story, and you're really not going to go out way to get him because... But David Carradine was a huge part of this film, and Jodorowsky hung out with him in L.A. with Dan O'Bannon sometimes, and just it would have just been nice to hear uh, an actor who was up for the role like him to talk about it as well. So those those are a couple of regrets I wish we could have got. Like, of course, I mean, I wish we could have got Dan O'Bannon because I'm 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 also happy that Dan O'Bannon is being discovered now by a wider audience. You know, you know the guy. Guy's amazing, <laughs> and um, that was a massive heartbreak as well. I was glad that you had those audio tapes of Bannon to kind of you know utilize those, and then doing some of those nice animations of him or things that were happening while he was talking were great. Yes, we were really lucky to find that. Going back to when I started first researching this movie, I, who I would never have known, but that first fanzine that I found from the seventies, it ends up the guy who wrote that fanzine had it on had his had an interview with dan o'bannon on audio cassette and 
man, that was, we, we really wanted Dan O'Bannon to be a part of this film. And God searched everywhere for something. And thank God we found that, you know, and I'm happy that we somewhat had him in the movie the best way we could, you know, especially a story like that that not a lot of people I think were very familiar with when they went in to see the film. So, so speaking of animation, who did the animation of the storyboards? Those were fantastic. Yes, that was uh, Sid Garin. We're very lucky to have him come in. He he also did. Uh, it was called. It was an eight, another documentary called um, Superheroes. And um, yeah, the guy. He's, not only is he did an awesome job animating, but I believe he's also like an artist. So it was just like. It was perfect, and we just didn't want, really want anyone to change up the storyboards. We just really wanted to use them as is, you know, to use Mobius's art. And, yeah, really blown away at the job he did, especially with the, uh, with the going through the galaxy animation sequence, you know. Really kicked ass on that. Tell me about the music in the film, because that adds such a great part to it. And I know you use some of the original scores from El Topo and Holy Mountain and all that, but who did the rest of the music for the film? Oh, that was um, Kurt Stenzel. He was, uh, going back to the New York hardcore days, uh, Frank Pavich created like a really cool friendship with him because he was in this hardcore band called Six and Violence back in the day. And then they hit it off, and then he formed his own little band called Spacecraft, it's all one word, and craft is with a K. When Frank and I were discussing the film, we were always, you know, Frank and I were huge fans of 70s films. Like, Frank introduced me to the book Easy Riders and Raging Bulls. And, and then um, we were always fans of, like, Saucer and stuff like that. So we always knew we wanted, like, a Tangerine Dream-like soundtrack. And so Frank luckily knew Kurt, and Kurt was doing music like that. So it just really worked out. And... That was really awesome call by Frank. The thing that I liked the most is that you really couldn't tell what was the older music and what was the newer stuff that you guys had created for the film. It just blended so seamlessly. Oh, wow. Well, thank you. That's, that's a huge compliment. <laughs> you know, it's, it's what we could only hope to, to strive for because, you know, lots of times the soundtracks can somewhat kill things too, you know. You guys had some amazing interviews with folks that weren't directly related to the film um you know like i'm thinking of uh drew mcweeney or richard stanley these kind of guys uh, i was curious how does gary kurtz fit into the whole scheme of things um yes gary kurtz i thought would be interesting because at the time it was just pretty much like i was telling you like all these ho- all the hollywood heads are pretty much just you know turning the movie down and i just really wanted to get a, i really wanted to get a voice that was in the industry from the 70s in the film and so, um, yeah, so we went with, you know, so we reached out to Gary Kurtz and he said, yes. And so I guess in some ways it would just been interesting to have him because of the parallels with Star Wars and everything. Um, but, you know, there's only so much we can use in the film. He didn't talk about any of that. He just, we just wanted to try to get as much of the climate as it was in the seventies by picking him, but he ended up, you know, being used in other ways in the film, but, uh, other weird thing, but he, he had some really interesting things to say we couldn't fit in the movie. Like, for instance, when Jodorowsky talks about he wanted the movie to be 12 hours, out of everyone, Gary Kurtz was the one person that kind of supported that idea that it was actually possible to do that at that time. When you hear 12 hours, it's like Gary Kurtz was immediately like, 
you know, there was many, fr- there, was, there was Russian films in the 70s that were 12 hours, but there was like three to four intermissions when you watch these films, you know? And then also when a movie is taking up your whole entire day at the theater, you know, how are you going to make the money on this film, you know? <laughs> if, if that was the case, you know, I guess you would have to do what they did with Caliglia and give you a special, you would have to buy a, a, a ticket that was like double the, the admission, you know? So he had some interesting things, but um, but that's the voice we we were trying to get was like that Hollywood voice, just someone from at least Hollywood. So it's just it's not always we didn't want it to always look like we're so you know Jarowski should have made this movie, he had every right to you know, which we still hoped you know we would love to have seen this film. But we also just wanted to get some of the voices from Hollywood to come in and just say like, hey, look what you're trying to say here, you know, to defend L.A., defend Hollywood. Jodorowsky's Dune would have predated Star Wars, and then Lynch's Dune was sold as the next Star Wars. So to have him right there, kind of in the middle between the two, with the one film that was the success, I think is a great way to have him positioned. Yeah, it's very trippy, and it's very trippy, too, when you think about, like, then you think about David Lynch, and then he could have been, you know, director of Return of the Jedi. The whole scene is just, yeah, it's very connected in a strange way. So the thing that was the most remarkable to me was the synchronicity that was involved in the whole project. You know, Jodorowsky bumping into Mobius, Jodorowsky being at the same party as Mick Jagger. Was there anything that just seemed too incredible to believe for you? He was looking for Mobius, he found him. Mobius and him get rid of Trumbull, and they're walking down the street, and then they go see Darkstar. He sees Mick Jagger at the party. Yeah, it's, it's a trip. So, like, in one weird way, it's like... It's almost like the movie was almost meant to be because all these people were falling into pra- into place. He found Salvador Dali, and Salvador Dali introduced him to Giger, and then Giger was a big part of the film. You know, it's like like Michelle Sado says, one thing led to another, led to another. It was just this. Everyone was just managed to jump on board. It became magic, and I don't know. I, I guess I can't really question. Jodorowsky. It feels very almost Jungian, you know, this, like, what you were saying as far as it was meant to be, it just felt so magical in the way that he was describing it, and it must have just, your jaw must have been on the floor half the time. Yeah, well, when I read the transcripts, yeah. It was pretty great, when I could understand. <laughs> when I was understanding him, like the Big Mac story and shit like that, it's hilarious and it's awesome, but yeah, when I was reading more, yeah, it, it's mind-blowing. You know, it's like all the pieces were there. It just kept coming together and coming together, you know, and it's, it's, it, it, it is a it is a shame it never happened. But I, I see what you're saying. And, you know, it's weird at the time when you're so involved with it. I, you know, I never think about stuff like that. But when I was watching, I've been watching the movie over and over again. And I start thinking about it. You know, you know, I, I do wonder, but he's such a just the way he describes it and his energy in him. Yeah, after watching the film, and maybe I missed it a bit, but I was just wondering what was the final thing that really got the plug pulled on the project? Now, I know Hollywood wasn't enthusiastic, but was it sort of the rights were reverting back to Herbert, you know, because he only had, you know, so much time to make the film, or what What was sort of that final thing where it's like, okay, this is it. It's, it, it's done. We can't do it. They needed to get the rest of the money to make the film. And without approval to get the film into U.S. theaters, they're pretty much, they're going to be screwed. They knew that was the two things they needed. It was the money and then to get it released. I think by that time when, when they started realizing that wasn't going to happen, that's when I think Sado just needed to pull out. He spent a lot of money on the, the means to rumored amounts. He spent over $2 million of his money on it. 
there's some cash on it. So I think at that point, it's just like, I just, you know, you have to pull the plug. And what's interesting is that Gabon, one of the producers we interviewed, you know, he said that throughout the process in LA, Dino De Laurentiis was there quite a bit. He was aware that this was going to happen. Dino De Laurentiis actually had the book also, the storyboard book. And then later on, we'll get into, you know, with Flash Gordon. He had the book. I think at any time he could have stepped in and gave the money to help the production, but I think he purposely just watched it fall apart so he can then buy the rights, which he did, and give to his daughter, Raffaella. Michelle Sado explained a story with him meeting Dino De Laurentiis in his office, and he gave the, you know, pretty much when he sold the rights to Dino De Laurentiis, he turned around and handed it to his daughter, who was standing there, and said, Raffaella, this is for you, and gave her Dune. So I think Sado just needed, needed to sell the rights and just, I guess, recruit whatever he could that he was just lost from, you know. It was just obviously the movie wasn't going to happen now without any support from the U.S., I can't even even imagine how much it would have cost to print up those books that he was carting around everywhere. Oh my God! Right, especially back then, the size of them and with some co- some color pages, and it's insane. Yeah, it's not like he could run over to Kinkos, you know? Yeah, exactly. I think one studio was offering him to give Jodorowsky like a co-director to hang out with him. The the guy who did the Tower and Inferno, and they of course, you know disagreed with that they wouldn't want to have Jodorowsky with you know any type of co-director so I mean I think that was the closest they came to almost getting a, an approval through Hollywood let's talk a little bit about some of these other projects you know you mentioned Flash Gordon what do you kind of see as the the legacy of Jodorowsky's Dune as far as that project goes uh, rather than your film which also has the same name conveniently enough it's just like while researching this film little by little you start discovering this and it's just bizarre that this the filmmaker who made you know holy mountain el topo pretty much i mean it's all there and then and in his comic books i mean it's not it, i mean it's like he he changed the his he changed the scope of science fiction cinema forever it's just not in you know not in just what he did with his comic books that people started borrowing from and not only from the storyboards that people borrowed from but it was also because when he had this production office for these couple of years you know he'd had chris foss in there and he had mobius and then mobius created a relationship with dan o'bannon and they wrote the long tomorrow and when you look at what that influenced in itself like these two guys would have never dan o'bannon would have never met mobius if it wasn't for jodorowsky's dune and because of that comic you know when when you open when you you could compare you know pages of of the long tomorrow and blade runner it's almost shot for shot you know even edward james almost his character looks identical to the character in the long tomorrow with the flying car in the beginning when james uh, uh james almost is flying harrison ford around like that that shot is like similar the shot with harrison ford running on top of the cars down the street and firing his weapons like from the long tomorrow even like the squid creature from prometheus is in the long tomorrow with the bald um engineers engineers. yeah like there's a shot for shot from long tomorrow in like prometheus it's it's like it's yeah it's kind of a trip and then you look at what that started that kind of the long tomorrow 
came out through, I believe, Metal Harl- Harlot magazine, and that's what inspired uh, Neuromancer, and that's what inspired the whole cyberpunk. Putting these artists together and watched what they created, like that alone, like stretches really far in itself. And then on the other hand, you have what the storyboards created, and you also have what his comics influenced. And, and you also have like weird other parallels, like Giger never, never did anything with film before, nothing like big budget film, but the fact that he brought him on board, and then that's how Giger got into Hollywood through there, you know, look what, you know, God, man, you know, what has the alien influenced you know, in itself, from Giger. When we play Contra to the boss battles in Contra, it's freaking aliens you're fighting, the Giger aliens, to, like, even, like, the sec, the third and fourth stage in Akari Warriors to all those fucking alien ripoffs. It's amazing what alien influenced. And then, if you think about it even further, it's like you have a movie like Galaxy of Terror, which is an alien ripoff. That's the movie where, you know, James Cameron got a lot of recognition from Battle Beyond the Stars, but... He worked on an alien ripoff, Galaxy of Terror, and he got noticed for having maggots move on a severed arm, and that's what got him his first directing gig on Piranha 2. So it's just really weird. There's like all kinds of weird roots that spawn out from this. I guess it kind of fits with that whole synchronicity thing that we were talking about before, that even though the project seemed like it was meant to happen maybe its demise was meant to happen as well for all these other things to kind of carry on. The crucial thing that, that, that sucks is that, I, you know, I'm, I'm praying for the days when you guys, of course, could look at the storyboards and you could just see even the shots. Jodorowsky grew as a filmmaker from Fondo and Liz to El Topo, and then just combine El Topo to Holy Mountain, right? It's a, the scope is bigger, you know, the, the sets are freaking... The sets in Holy Mountain are phenomenal. Like, they really look lived in, like the Alchemist Tower and everything. It's, it's incredible. And so when you, and then especially those shots in the tower, when you're when, in Holy Mountain, when you're looking down and the, and the room is spinning, like, he was doing some really interesting shots. And when you look through some of these storyboards on Dune, he was doing some of those exact shots of looking down, like, that room when it's spinning. But also, there was, like, a scene when Leto meets the Emperor of the Universe, he talks to a robot that's disguised as the emperor. And then he gets shot down a trap door into a room where the emperor is upside down and Leto is standing, looking at him and the whole room starts like moving and rotating. Like it was just like, like so many shots in this film were just like amazing. And you just wanted to see like what he, how much he grew from El Topo to Holy mountain. Just imagine what he was going to grow from Holy mountain to Dune. And, it, and it's almost like, even though he says he never read the book Dune, but it's almost like when you see Holy Mountain, you know, there is like some type of cosmos feel to the film, especially when he has those seven people that are going to follow him. You know, they're all named after planets. It only made sense that he can do a sci-fi movie next, and especially when you watch El Topo. Those people that take him in in El Topo, those are total Fremen, you know, and that's Fremen years before he was even going to get involved with Dune. That'd been awesome if the friend were in El Topo. It would have been a different movie. Well, I love that segue that you do, where you have the people in Holy Mountain on that mountain, and you tilt up to the stars. You know, like the the use of that shot in Holy Mountain as you know you're introducing the idea of him doing Dune as the next movie. Like, where else can he go but outer space? 
Oh, thanks. Yeah, we again. We had an amazing editor, Alex Riccati. Hope I didn't butcher his last name. He did an amazing job. But yeah, it, it only makes sense when you see something like El Topo. It's just you know, where else could he go from that film? And this was like perfect for him. And especially when you when you read when you look at Dune and you see and like what he had a lot in these storyboards, there was lots of ceremonies with Bene Gesserits and with 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 Fremen. And when you watch like the ceremonies in Holy Mountain and in El Topo, you know, it's just like, you know, he nails it so well. Just imagine the ceremonies he could have done with the Bene Gesserits, you know, and with the Fremen. He was just made for it. You know, there was like no one else. Maybe that's what also freaked out Hollywood because there were sequences like that. You know, like every time Lady Jessica would do when Lady Jessica and Paul take the water of life, there's a psychedelic trip out scene. You know, it's just, you know, it was the perfect it kind of was the perfect film for him to do to do next. And going back to Holy Mountain, when you look at that, the Alchemist Tower, um, when the, the ships in, in Dune, you know, they fly vertically. But like an elevator, when they land, they land horizontally, and then some of the ships turn into towers that stick out of the desert. You know, it's like so unique, and that's very reminiscent for me of Holy Mountains, Alchemist Tower. You know, he was bringing a lot of those films into Dune. It would have still been, you know, yeah, it's Jodorowsky's Dune. It's his take on Dune, you know, and it's just so strange how the worlds of his other films actually were mixing in very well with this world. You talk about looking at the storyboards and all that, and the one project that sort of seems to be a parallel for me when I think about people that spend all this time and money and years and research was Stanley Kubrick, and he never got the chance to do his Napoleon. But a few years ago, Tashin Books put out this amazing book on Napoleon, and I was wondering if anyone has approached Jodorowsky about publishing that massive book that you tease us with uh, all through the uh, all through the film. There's lots of rumors, and, and I know they're they're definitely interested, but I think there might have to be some rights they have to clear up first. But there's a lot of interest in it right now. I can I can see it coming out. As of right now, there's nothing set in stone or anything. You know, Jorowski says in the movie he'd like people to animate it. You know, which would be awesome as well. I bet it will eventually come out the book, but maybe not for another couple of years. I bet we can only help to get an animated film. And I think also the closest other thing we got is that Refrain mentioned around cans that he was interested in doing the Incal as a movie, but that I've never heard anything since then. You know, for a man who's now in his mid eighties, I still see him. You see him in the film with you and you recorded these interviews with him, you know, a few years back and he still seems quite together and very animated and alive and in good health. Uh, I was just wondering did he, you know, what is his secret? to be that spry and and alert in his mid eighties. God, I I would love to know. Yeah. I would love to know myself. Actually. (laughs) I do not know. Maybe it's tarot. Maybe it's meditation. Maybe it's, I mean, I, maybe I need to start taking these things up myself. That's what everyone keeps saying. Yeah. He he looks, he looks pretty fantastic. He looks amazing. The energy, you know, I don't even have that much energy on certain days. It's insane. So how did your film play a part in the dance of reality that's coming out shortly. It's interesting when Frank would go see Sado and it was something that we all noticed also when we went to go to uh, his, his uh, Sado's production office is that Sado had all of the, like all the work that Foss and Mobius did all over his walls. You could still see that he still loved this project. You know, they just had that breakup. And then while we're in France, 
I thought it was our sound guy, Damon Cook. I, I almost remember him saying we should bring them together. And, and yeah, we, we went for it and they agreed and we brought them to a park where they met. We unfortunately couldn't use it in the movie because it was just, it was turning into like a Michael Mann movie. We just had so many endings. And we also had to cut out an ending with, with what was comics influenced in film too. We had to cut that out. We had to do some cutting. So we ended up introducing them. They haven't talked in all those years, but when we were talking to Jodorowsky, didn't sound like he had any ill will towards Sado at all. And then Sado had nothing towards him. So we just brought them two together in the park and they met and they hung out and they hit it off again after all those years. And then we found out a year later that Sado was giving him money to make dance a reality. So it was like I was saying earlier, like, Going through the 90s and watching all these movies fall apart, not all, there was only a couple of them, but just seeing that he still wants to make films and they're falling apart, you know, it's it's really mind-blowing that, you know, because of Jorowski's Dune, they, you know, Jorowski got a new movie made, and it's a quite beautiful film, too. So you talked about cutting out endings and cutting the, the film. What do you see as kind of your ideal DVD package when this thing comes out? Uh, yeah, I'm dying to know myself. I'm kind of out of the loop on all that. You know, I would. Um, I there was so much research done that we couldn't even use. You know, I mean, there was so much research I even did of uh, Jacob's attempt in the beginning. You know, before Jodorowsky even had it, the guy who produced Planet of the Apes was going to make it. I don't know. We'll have to see. I'm I'm really curious myself to see what they do. I unfortunately am completely out of that loop. But there was so much. You know, there's so many really cool stories and that we couldn't put in the film because it would just take up too much time because some stories you know we wanted to really keep it at an hour and a half too plus it's such a heavily subtitled movie so i hope they put some storyboards i can only tell you what i hope they put on unfortunately but it was a lot of research that we couldn't even use for the doc itself you know but like instance also even at the ending of you know, when we're showing at the end of the film what influenced out of Jorowski's Dune, you know, I also found, like, when you watch the movie, they talk about how the planet in Jodorowsky's version of Dune, it becomes lush with forests at the ending. And the planet, you know, co- turns from a desert planet into a lush, you know, green, livable planet with forests and everything. And, for instance, like, you know, I don't know if you remember in Star Trek 2 and in Star Trek 3, the whole Genesis program where you take a dead planet and you have that whole sequence of the planet now turning from a dead planet into a lush planet. You know, that's kind of, you know, I, I, I kind of wish we could have used like like that in the film also, because I kind of thought that was a very close parallel. Two movies coming out so close to time that have that same exact scene, you know. Was the other thing? There's also just some really bizarre things in the in in the storyboards. Like, for instance, there there are just these massive amounts of party scenes. They have these huge party scenes, and what's also interesting, one sequence, there's four of them going on at the same time, and it's could have. When you look at the storyboards, you wonder this could have took up maybe fifteen to maybe thirty minutes of the screen of the movie. You never know, and then. It's weird because then you look ahead at Deer Hunter and they had that and what's one of the most next to the Russian roulette scenes is just this that epic wedding scene, you know, and it's again, he was pushing ideas like that before these films came out. And also with like Galaxy Quest, there's this asteroid base in that film. I'm not saying I, but Galaxy Quest saw the storyboards for Dune. It's just pretty amazing that 
Galaxy Quest comes out like in 99, but in like 74, when Jurowski is doing these storyboards, he creates a Bene Gesserit asteroid that they fly around in, but that ships shoot out of. It's just so many things ahead of its time. Well, even having Tatooine be this desert planet in Star Wars, you know, seems pretty similar to me. That yeah, that's a trip too. And then you also have like that worm skeleton in the background in Star Wars. <laughs> you know, you know, Paul Atreides is the one. Luke Skywalker is the one. Yeah, lots of batshit parallels in that. Yeah, we had to cut out a whole sequence too. It was just going on a little bit too long. I bet this will be on the DVD. It was. Uh, you know, there's the scene when Luke Skywalker finds his dead aunt and uncle as skeletons outside their place. After like, um, there's like a shot for shot of that in Dune with the uh, soldier looking through binoculars and seeing the dead remains outside their hut. You know, it's almost shot for shot. It's freaking crazy. But George Lucas loved, did like Dune. He was a big fan of the, I mean, it's known in some of those Star Wars books you know, that he was a fan, you know, he was, you know, he was doing what Tarantino does, you know, he was putting together like his favorite things from many films together. You know, he got the lightsabers idea from one film to, you know, we, the Kurosawa movie and then definitely, yeah, influenced quite a bit off of Dune. Scarlatta for coming on the show, this special edition of the Projection Booth talking about Jodorowsky's Dune. If you haven't had a chance to see it yet and it's in a theater near you, I recommend you go see it because this is one of those films that those who are in the know are going to go check it out, but probably won't last too long. So if you wait longer than a week or two weeks or maybe even three weeks to see it, it could be gone and then you have to wait until you know home video or something in order to see it. So you know, do yourself a favor, go see it now, and especially with the visuals and the various things that they've done in terms of animation of the storyboards and all the various things that we talked about in that interview, you really owe it to yourself to see it on the big screen if you get a chance. And we will have a link over to the Sony website where you can see where it's playing. Um, don't hold those dates as the gospel because actually they had some incorrect dates on there. So I would say look to see where it's going to be playing, and then just verify with whatever local theater you might have and make sure that it's actually opening on that day. You do not want to miss this film. It is very important, and it is it is such a wonderful thing to see on the big screen. I saw it with maybe, I don't know, five, six people. It was the first screening of the day at the Maple Theater, and uh, it was great. I mean, it was laughter. There were people gasping. I mean, just even with a small audience, it was so much more enjoyable seeing it with that audience and hearing the reaction of, of different folks throughout the, the place. And, you know, there are, are so it's a roller coaster ride, really, to hear all of the things that went into making this project that was never realized. It is just an amazing, amazing trip. You know, I mentioned this to Stephen in the interview in reference to this book. And when you see the film, you know what I'm talking about. There's this giant book that he has that has all the storyboards and, and art and script and all of that stuff in it. And I'm just hoping that someone comes along like Tashin who respects this kind of idea 
and we'll put this book out because if this book goes out, I got to tell you, I'm going to be there with my dollars to get one of these things because I've got to see all of this stuff. I've got I'd like have to see everything that went in to um, making this a possible reality that never really came to fruition. I mean, it is really one of those films that, you know, when we look through sort of the history of movies that were planned or people did a lot of research and time and energy and stuff like that, it really is one of those sort of landmark films that we go, wow, I wonder what that would have been like. Well, in this case, we actually have a version of the film, David Lynch's version, when there are other movies such as Napoleon, which Stanley Kubrick was going to do, and Tashin put out that beautiful uh, book several years ago, and that never got made. And part of the reason why it didn't get made was it was interesting when we did the interview with Steven, and I didn't get a chance to chime in on this, where he was talking about how Jodorowsky wanted to do Dune as like a 12-hour movie. And at the time, there was a film about Napoleon in the late 60s, I think it was 69 or 70, that came out and was, I think, 8 or 12 hours long. It was a Russian film. And it did so poorly that that was part of the reason why MGM wouldn't let Stanley Kubrick make his version. They wouldn't give him the money for it because they're like, look how bad that thing did. No thanks. So it's it's interesting to see the difference between what somebody's vision of what they were going to do is and how it eventually mutated into this other thing when we talk about the David Lynch version. And just sort of looking at everything you know, and, and having him discuss what – this project would have meant to him and what he was really trying to accomplish. And the thing that's really fascinating about Jodorowsky when he talks about this movie is that he wanted it to be so much more than just a movie. He wanted it to be like this societal revolution, this like consciousness changing. He wanted it to be, as he said, like taking LSD, but it wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't have to take LSD. It would be the movie that would do it to you. It's so funny because when we did this, uh, the Dune episode way back, I think it was episode four, uh, pre-rap episode, and one of the things that um, was discussed on that episode was people uh, objecting to the liberties, quote-unquote, that David Lynch took when he adapted Herbert's Dune for the big screen, the weirding modules and all this stuff. And it's like, you know, Lynch was making this with Herbert around. You know, it wasn't like he was off doing his own thing and, you know, coming up with all these crazy ideas. And when you look at Lynch's movie and you compare it to the book, it is so faithful on so many different levels. And I can only imagine the the Frank Herbert fans that went to see Jodorowsky's Dune, their head would explode because it is so completely different. But yet it captures a lot of the same things that Herbert has written about. So it was faithful, faithful but not faithful at the same time. You know, one of the things that, that's interesting about adaptations of of books into film is I remember Elmore Leonard said something that the book is the book, the film is the film, you know, and that's what it is, you know, so don't get hung up on, Oh, did it stay faithful to the book? Don't worry about that. And, but the other thing that was interesting was I just rewatched Dune for like the first time in I don't know, like 20 something years. And then I went back and I listened to the episode and there's a piece that you have in there. And I don't expect you to remember this because this was three odd years ago that you did this episode where it's David Lynch and Frank Herbert talking. It's an interview. And in the interview, Herbert talks about how, well, at one point someone – I think he may even mention Jodorowsky by name. And he says, yeah, and that would have just been a mess. It would have just been horrible. you know." And talks about like 
you know, it's just sort of a brief quote from him saying, this is much better. Like what David was able to do is much better than what that other project was. It was just, oh my God, it was an atrocity kind of thing. And, <laughs> and I just, um, that, that, that's kind of the one voice though, that's missing in the documentary, you know, for everything that's in there. And it's just an amazing thing. Would have been nice if there was some tape or some interview or somebody who was close to Herbert, maybe a biographer or something that could say, yeah, he, he like looked at this thing and he just, and hated it like you didn't like, like he was glad that it got killed off you know or something i mean because it, just that little interview piece and i know part of it has to do with pr related to oh we're releasing a movie so everybody has to talk really nice about it but i'm actually wondering if he hated jodorowsky's vision that much that that would be something that i i would love to really know more about I want to ask you, having just recently listened to that episode, this is something that's been concerning me for a while. I had a friend who said, oh, you know, I love Dune so much. And I said, oh, yeah, well, we covered it on the show. And they listened to the episode. And it was like, I thought you said you liked Dune. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I did. (laughs) Well, that episode, yeah, you don't say anything good about it. Rob, in your opinion, do I sound like I hate the movie when you listen to that episode? No, you know what it sounded like to me? And this is going to be an odd statement, but both you and Justin, who are on that episode, both sound like people who absolutely love something so much that you're willing to admit its faults. It's kind of like saying, yes, I'm married to this person, or yes, this is my father, or yes, this is my mother, but here are the problems they have. You know, So, so it's really this sort of uh, willingness to go, yeah, I know that it's not the best. You know, I know that there are problems with it, but let me tell you why I like it. You know, and I, I think what you guys were trying to do on that episode, and, and I would invite people who have seen Jodorowsky's Dune or are going to go see it or they have an interest in it or they, they like the David Lynch film and they haven't listened to your episode back then, go check it out because it's worth the time, is that I, I really think you guys try to address all of the problems that people bring up. And in that, you know, you've heard them before. It's like, oh, well, you know, the movie doesn't make any sense. And there's this and there's that. And, you know, why does he do this and that? And what about this? And the effects look cheap and all of these. I mean, you put that whole thing in there, the um, the Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert interviews or reviews in there, too. And, and you kind of address their points as well. So I think really what you guys are trying to do is to refute some of that stuff in that show. The other thing that people also have to keep in mind is in those early shows, you guys were always trying to keep it at around an hour. Right. When I came on the show, we threw that out the window. So, <laughs> you know, if we were doing Dune now, it would probably be six hours. So it's just... You know, you guys really had a lot more, I guess, restraint in terms of uh, what you were going to put into that show. So I, I think that if given the opportunity, you would have had a, it would have been broader in that way. It wouldn't have sounded maybe to that guy that you were, you know, capping on it, which I don't think you were. I think you were just admitting, like I said, the faults and trying to go, yeah, I love it, but look at the problems it has. It's like, look at this old car. You know, I love this old car, but fucking radiator leaks. All right, I'm glad I'm glad to hear that because I just kind of want to go on the record again and I might have said that this in that episode or not. Dune is one of those movies whenever it is on TV, whenever I have a spare moment, I mean, it is in the DVD player a lot more than any other movie that I have because it is just one of these 
great meditative pieces. I mean, I quote from that freaking thing all the time. <laughs> and it's one of those, like, every single time a new version comes out, I buy it. You know, I've got DVDs from Germany, Japan, all these different things just to see if there's a different cut or different extra on it. Uh-huh. And it's one of those where if a new fan cut of it comes out, I'm there downloading it and, you know, scouring the torrent sites and everything. Where can I get this fan edit? <laughs> so, I mean, I've seen so many different versions of the film, I've kind of forgotten what's what but yeah it is such a uh, it's such a part of my life and i think that's the only thing that makes me a little sad in jenerowski's dune is when they talk about what a failure the lynch dune was and it was a failure in box office and there were a lot of people that were just so angry with it and everything i would love to live in a world where lynch's dune and jenerowski's dune both existed i think that would be probably the best of both worlds to throw in a Star Trek Next Generation reference. I mean, you guys put this into that episode, um, that discussion that when this came out, people expected it to be the next Star Wars. And I think that it's like nobody ever is going to be happy with that. They're just not. They're just not. It's just you're setting yourself up for failure. And I think that was the worst idea and I don't even know if it was marketed that way or if it was just the perception of the audience that, hey, we're going to go see the new Star Wars, you know. And they walked out completely mystified as to what the hell they just saw and kind of turned off and upset. And I, I don't believe it was Lynch's fault in the least um, because, I mean, how can you meet that expectation? I mean, I remember reading the liner notes to the Stooges album, and they were talking. It was Alice Cooper who wrote the liner notes. And he goes, you know what I would never do? He goes, I would never go on after the Stooges. He goes, I would always go on first, even though, even though I would want to be the headliner. And he goes, you want to know why? Because they would come on, and they would kill my audience. And by the time <laughs> I came on, nobody cared. And that's really what what he was up against with this, David Lynch, you know, where it was like, hey, Star Wars sucked all the oxygen out of the room. Here you go. Here's something that's like it. Falls over dead. So it's there's really nothing you can do, you know, in, in that way. The, the thing that's interesting when we talk about Jodorowsky's Dune is the fact that it was before Star Wars. And this film could have been made before Star Wars and could have had – it could have completely forked the road in a different direction because whenever we talk about big blockbuster film, we talk about you know science fiction blockbuster film, it always goes back to 1977. It always goes back to Star Wars. You know, I mean really, okay, you could say Jaws the year before when we talk about blockbuster film, but if we're talking about science fiction – it happened in 1977, George Lucas put that film out, and it completely changed the history of science fiction film going forward. I mean, because up until that point, science fiction film was this, like, B-level, you know, Roger Corman-esque, you know, nonsense that kiddies went to. And he brought this thing out where not only did kids like it, but adults liked it and had the special effects, which to me, I think 2001 looks better. But anyway, um, <laughs> at least the first film. And just um, completely like rewrote the book. It, it somehow grabbed the zeitgeist. And when you watch Jodorowsky's Dune, you're sort of taken with the idea that, man, it's like this movie could have been the zeitgeist. This movie could have been the thing that, that changed the direction right after 2001. This could have been the thing that, you know, and it didn't happen. But what it did do was influence all of this other stuff going forward, which is quite amazing, including Star Wars. Yeah, I'm really curious what it would have done. Would it have captured that lightning in a bottle that Star Wars did? 
I'm not sure. You know, I think it would have been really, really freaking heady. I definitely see it as being another major milestone when you're looking at that road from 2001 to Star Wars. You know, there are a few things in between here and there, and I'm sure that I'm going to forget a lot. But, you know, when I look at the path, I see things like, you know, Silent Running. I see things like Solaris. I, you know, there are other films in between there that have that same kind of level of contemplative science fiction, the quietness that um, you would get in 2001 that would be completely blown out of the water by Star Wars with just the kind of loud, bombastic, you know, space battles, this kind of stuff, which, you know, I love. Star Wars basically completely changed my life, so I don't want anybody to think that I don't love the first and the second film, all the other ones you can keep. But, yeah, those two movies, just such a change in the landscape with everything. I don't know if... Jodorowsky's Dune would have changed the landscape like that, but it definitely would have been one of these things where you look back and you go, oh my God, look at that You know, marvelous work. To me, it would have been this work of art that would have been in between those two films, between 2001 and Star Wars. And I think, yeah, it would have probably, it would have changed Star Wars, definitely, because I don't think you could have another you know, desert planet with this Messiah figure had you, you know, you, had Jodorowsky's Dune come out, I think Star Wars would have had to have changed itself quite a bit. I don't think that it would have been able to exist in the form that it is. See, I, I think that Jodorowsky's Dune, if it would have been made and released in seventy five, seventy six, around that time when he was planning it, it would, and it would have been a game changer in some ways, but it wouldn't have been a box office bonanza it wouldn't have been star wars in terms of the amount of money because first off his plan was the film was gonna be really long really contemplative gonna be really weird you know especially if you look at holy mountain you know if you put that into a multiplex people would be like what the hell am i looking at so there's those kind of aspects but in terms i think of its influence it would have done one of two things as a matter of fact um to be honest if they if the studios would have paid for dune and it didn't make any money, Star Wars may have never existed, <laughs> you know, because, True. you know, he had to beg, he had to beg to get, I think, $12 million to make the first Star Wars film, I believe. And when you look at it, let's go back to the story I told about Kubrick and Napoleon, where you had this Russian film, it did horrible at the box office, and MGM said, we're not doing another Napoleon film, sorry. So here you go. You got George Lucas. He's like, hey, I've got this idea for this film. Okay, great. What is it? Oh, it's this thing in space, and there's a kid. He's on a desert planet, and there's all this stuff. No, 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 no. That, that movie, the crazy <laughs> – you, Lucas. Get out of my the, office. The, the crazy Chilean guy with the Russian last name, yeah, he made that movie almost like a year ago, and it didn't make any money. So get the hell out of here. Come back with another American graffiti, will you? You know, right. so I mean, there there could have been that. Who knows? I mean, we can sit here and contemplate the ifs all day of what could have happened. But it's it, it's a fascinating little parlor game for us film freaks. But I definitely think that this film, when we talk about the documentary, it's definitely worth your time. I mean, if you don't know Alejandro Jodorowsky, even better reason to go see it because it'll give you a crash course in him to some extent. And um, if you like Dune, great, go see it. You know, if you don't like Dune. Go see it anyway. I think everybody should see this film. It's that good. I can't wait to talk Holy Mountain with you. I am really looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, ever since I got into his stuff, like I said, on those really bad bootleg VHS tapes, uh, just 
just amazed by it. And he, you know, you can really tell what I value in the past maybe year and a half based on what I have left in my collection. Because when I left, when I moved, I sold off like three quarters of my DVDs. So really all I have right now is the absolute stuff that I know I'm going to go back and watch and I can't easily get my hands on, you know, via Netflix or something like that. And I have this Jodorowsky box set. And of course, I have all my Bunuel films and I have my Coffin Joe films and I have other stuff. But, you know, I didn't sell any of those because those things still resonate for me, you know. So it's that, that that's why I love this guy. You know, I, I love his work. And I said, it's, it's to, to use a David Lynchism. It's such a sadness that, um, that Jodorowsky's do never happened. Well, yeah, at least we have this doc so folks can go check it out and see what might've been shed a tear, but be grateful that Jodorowsky's doing the documentary exists. Yeah. Check it out and then go check out El Topo and Holy Mountain and then meet us back in the end of June when we talk Holy Mountain, because, uh, yeah, you're going to have to have seen Holy Mountain for that episode to make any sense. Otherwise, it's going to sound like we've all taken three hits of acid and we're just mumbling. And then this guy's got leopards instead of nipples, and he's shooting this you know, guy in the face. And there are these frogs, and they're all dressed up like conquistadors, and they're like... Uh, and then there's a cake. There's a guy's head that's made out of cake. And then there's this guy, and he's walking through this rainbow room. And then there's the alchemist who turns shit into gold. It's like what? Like uh, I don't. Yeah, go watch it. So all uh, everything I just said makes sense in some way. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So yeah, go over to our Facebook group, um, which is facebook.com/slash/theprojectionbooth, and sign up because we're posting. Um, you know when when this is showing at different times and everything. Uh, you got to go over there and and check that out. You got to check out their the website. We'll have links for that up at our page, which is projection-booth.com. And yeah, you owe it to yourself to see this on the big screen. And if not, get ready to pre-order this thing as soon as it is available. And we'll have links for when the pre-orders are available too, because this is a film that we 100% stand behind. And this is something that we encourage everyone to see. Maybe even take your mom. You know, that would be an interesting experience. What did your mom think of Jodorowsky's Dune? I don't know.
who will uh, give a, a, a mutation to the young minds uh, was sacred. You need to sacrifice yourself. I was even ready to die doing that. <laughs> 